Like I said, my name is Pastor Tellus. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we're about to get into the Word. We're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 through 9, and we're going to continue our series that Pastor Dad started last week on the Beatitudes. Uh, we talked about um, some significant portions of Scripture, and Jesus is one of his most well-known and significant messages, the Sermon on the Mount. That this is the introduction, this is kind of the character and the qualities of the kingdom of heaven. And we see Jesus introducing, towards the beginning of his ministry, some people and commentators and theologians think that this was Jesus' kind of like bread and butter sermon. That he would just constantly go back to this. This would kind of be the standard on which he moved forward. How Jesus is talking in this moment to his disciples. Now, there are a bunch of crowds that were following Jesus at this time, but he's specifically talking to people who are following him. Disciples giving a condition right here, and not just any condition, but a blessed condition upon people. These Beatitudes are blessed, for, blessed are the people blank, for theirs is blank. And this word blessed is this word that means happy. And it's not the typical blessed word that we might think where it's like, oh, I'm going to get a promotion or I'm going to get another job. Oh, things are going to be really easy for me or I'm going to get a lot of money. But blessed is this happy condition that Jesus is professing over you for a certain type of person. And we're going to go through this and see what the kingdom of heaven really looks like in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 through 9. It says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're going to look at these four Beatitudes today, and the title of my message is going to be Kingdom Culture. Beatitudes, Kingdom Culture. Will you pray with me real quick? Father, we love you so much. And we're thankful, God, that you've brought us here today. I'm asking that you would open our eyes and our ears by your spirit so that we can see and hear everything that you want to speak to us in this moment. God, would you make less of me and more of you, that we can see your son and be forever and permanently changed by him. Lord, we love you so much. Allow us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Here we have Jesus talking about the culture of the kingdom of heaven. The culture of the kingdom of heaven. One of the first beatitudes, the first beatitude that we see is that Jesus says that blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's important that we realize the first beatitude because I feel like they really set up the rest of the beatitudes. That blessed condition or the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's this almost paradoxical statement that Jesus is making. That he's saying, essentially, blessed are you who have nothing for you have everything. Blessed are you who are impoverished and desperate spiritually for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who have very little spiritually, nothing spiritually, because in that lack is where you realize your need for God. And it sets up the rest of the Beatitudes, that we realize our condition, and from that we move into mourning over our condition. We move then from mourning over our condition into the meekness and understanding our condition. We move from the meekness and understanding of our condition then to being those who are hungry for righteousness. 
Jesus is establishing a truth to them that they are currently living in and learning to be. That this is a truth of the kingdom of heaven that they've been brought into, and they are learning to live in it. Jesus is teaching them some kingdom culture about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And just like Pastor Dad mentioned last week, that there is a certain type of kingdom that they, the Jews and the people of God, were expecting Jesus to bring that he wasn't going to bring. They were expecting this kingdom that was going to overthrow Rome and set them up and take off the yoke and that they were going to live a, a, a wonderful life just like it was with David. That we were going to have a king who's going to rule and, and, and save and protect, and he was going to do everything that we expect him to do. And even though Jesus was going to rule and protect and reign, he wasn't going to do it in the way that they thought he was going to do it. Have you ever been in that place where you thought Jesus was going to do something for you, but he didn't do it the way that you wanted him to do it? Jesus right here is breaking their paradigms and their expectations of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Jesus will always, you, we, we have this idea and, and this wish of how Jesus will show up, and he always shows up better than how we expect it. And this is just another example of that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now this word righteousness we see all the time in scripture, if you've been in church, you hear this word all the time and you might have a positive connotation or a negative connotation with this word, but this word righteousness, I think it's important that we understand what this word means so we can move on in this word. What this word means really is right standing, correctness, innocence, right standing, and specifically right standing with God. That blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this right standingness with God, for they shall be satisfied. Now, it's interesting when we use this word right standing with God because we see in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we are meant to be right with God, and yet all of us are not right with God. This juxtaposition of now I have to figure out if I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I do want to be satisfied, but how do I get to that point? If everybody has fallen short, and I'm not at the point where I need to be with to be right with God, how do I get there? And there's this truth that our righteousness has been imputed to us by him. So now we are not righteous because we have done something, but we are righteous because he has done something. So our righteousness is not of our own doing. Actually, in Isaiah, he says that actually our best righteous deeds in ourselves are actually filthy rags to God. That the best thing that we can come up with is actually dirty in comparison to God. So if we have this understanding that our righteousness doesn't compare to his righteousness— how are we supposed to be right with God? The only way that we can be right with God is if God makes us right with God by being our sacrifice and making us right through his sacrifice because Jesus never sinned. So if he never sinned when he died, he could pay for our sin. And now our sin has been paid for. So now all we do is we have faith in the gift of Jesus and by grace through faith, we are made righteous by God. So now our righteousness is not about what we do, but it's about what he did. It's a truth about righteousness 
in the Christian faith. And, and because of this, now we are right with God. And so now we live right with God. We have been made right with God. So now we live right with God. And it's important to realize that Jesus isn't talking about salvation here. He's not talking about how you be saved. He's talking about the kingdom and the cultures of heaven, the characteristics of what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And when we think about righteousness, I think that most of us honestly acknowledge righteousness to some extent. That if you're here or if you're watching online, you probably have some extent of acknowledging righteousness, acknowledging that there is a standard, acknowledging that there is a God, acknowledging that there are some things that I should do and things that I should want. And we have that understanding. And most of us acknowledge it. And I would even say that some of us even want to long for it. That Jesus is saying here that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for it. And some of us might not be at the place where we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but some of us might be at the place where we want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And there, I think, even are some of us who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And with these different places that we can be at in our faith, either acknowledging, really wanting to, or actually hungering and thirsting, Jesus isn't talking about just some flippant desire that we are looking for to have our conscience cleaned. But he's saying that there is a blessed condition over those who are parched and desperate in the need of the things of God. Hungering and thirsting isn't something that we're super uh, uh, well-versed with here in the West. Now, I don't want to presume anything about you, but in our time, there's not a lot of times when we are starving ourselves or parched of thirst. And in this time, sometimes these people had to work to eat. That you would do your day's wages, and because of your wages, you would get paid so that you could eat. That hungering and thirsting took on an entirely different meaning for the people who are listening to Jesus' sermon. When he said hunger and thirst for righteousness, they were saying, you want me to be that desperate? You want me to, you want me to be starving for righteousness? Not just accepting it as it comes every Sunday? You want me to be starving and thirsting for the things of God and not just how convenient or how much that he's blessed me? When these people heard hunger and thirst, they weren't thinking of I'm just going to go to church or I'm going to say a prayer before my meal. They weren't thinking that I am desperate. This is actually the thing that I need is to hunger and thirst for God and the things of God. I think that when we think about righteousness right here, it's, it's this truth, but that there is a blessing that Jesus is, is proclaiming over these people. And this blessing is that those who feast on the things of God are fed by the things of God. And those who feast on the things of the world are fed by the things of the world. If, 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 if I am fed by the things of the world in college, you can be fed by a lot of different things, but they're not going to satisfy you. You remember when you were in college and you had Chinese food every week because they had a really good deal? Or you went to Dollar Menu at McDonald's every week because you didn't have any money for it? You were fed, but that doesn't mean that you were satisfied. That we could be full. Hey, did you know that it's possible to be full and not satisfied? 
I mean, we're full on the world right now. We are gluttons for the world right now. The world is at our fingertips. Everything that you want, you can get right now. We have been eating and partaking of the world for who knows how long, and there has been no doubt that we have had a full course buffet on what the world has to offer. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I look around and I see the condition of the world, I do not see people that are satisfied. I just see people that are full. And we are living in a time when people are full of the world and still not satisfied. And Jesus is saying, I can, I'll let you, you can feast on the world as much as you want, but you are never going to be satisfied by it. Jesus, Jesus was, was the person who said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the Father's mouth. That there is something that people are telling you will satisfy you. Sin, here's the thing about sin in the world is that it will always overpromise and always underdeliver. It is always going to tell you, oh, your life is going to be great as long as you get to this position, as long as you get this title, as long as you have these letters behind your name, as long as you live in this neighborhood, as when you get this car, that vacation that all of them went on by this age, as soon as you're married by this, all of these different things that the world is promising us will always overpromise and always underdeliver. They're going to promise you life, and they're going to give death. We have an appetite for the wrong things because we feed on the wrong things. I mean, I think it's honestly that, that simple. We're hungry for the wrong things because we're feeding the wrong things. And you change what you're fulfilled by by changing what you feast on. And we're feasting on the things of the world and we're wondering, man, why don't I want to read my Bible why is it so difficult for me to pray? Why can I never figure out if God seems so far? It's because we're feasting on the world instead of Christ. We're not hungry for righteousness. Some of us might be hungry for convenience. Some of us might be hungry for luxury. We might be hungry for our own selfish gain, but Jesus is pronouncing a blessed condition on those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It says in Colossians 2, we can't go to it right now, but this, this series that we've been doing on Colossians for the past few weeks has been so helpful to me for our 715 service on Wednesdays. Because here we see in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, this idea that Paul is saying that these things have the appearance of wisdom, but they are of no substance. He's talking about all of these thoughts that were holding the Colossians captive. These different ideas and ideologies in the world that they were grabbing onto and holding onto to say, this plus Jesus will give me what I want. And he's saying, these things have the appearance of wisdom, but actually speaking, they are of no value. That you might be tricked into thinking that the world is really going to give you what you've been looking for your whole life. And he's saying, it might have the appearance of wisdom, but it's not going to satisfy you. You might think it's a good idea. It might sound like a good idea. You might even think that it worked for them. But at the end of the day, Jesus is saying to us that that thing will not satisfy you. I've never found somebody who's hungered and thirsted after the world and left satisfied. He says, man, I'm so happy that I just abandoned my family and went to work 50 hours, 60 hours, 70 hours a week. It's been my, the joy of my life. I'm so happy that I have my yacht, but I don't talk to my kids. I love this. No one is thirsted after the world 
and left satisfied. And Jesus is saying that blessed are you who has hungered and thirsted for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. He says in a few verses later in verse 20 uh, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, for us, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but for them, this means that the Pharisees and the scribes were the epitome of what it looked like to be a religiously good person, that they had everything right. They were the standard of religion, the standard of morality. The standard was the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus literally says, unless your righteousness supersedes the most righteous, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so I can only imagine that the people hearing this story were like, well, what do we do? Well, if I'm not going to be more righteous than he is, if I'm not going to be more righteous than he is, and that's what it takes to enter into the kingdom of heaven, well, what do, this doesn't seem fair. And Jesus is saying that this is exactly what Pastor AJ quoted in, in transition. This truth of he who knew no sin became sin, so that you and I might become the righteousness of Christ Jesus. So now your righteousness is not about how well you perform for God, but about how well God performed for you. So now I believe that the satisfaction that Jesus is talking about, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied is this truth that now because Jesus said, I can't be righteous unless I'm the most righteous and I've been made the most righteous by the most righteous. So now my satisfaction doesn't come from anything else, but my satisfaction comes in the deep breath and the sigh of relief that I can take knowing that I'm righteous. That's where my satisfaction comes from. I am satisfied. I can now be satisfied because I am righteous. I don't, I'm, I'm hungering and I'm thirsting after the things of God and the ways of God. And when we are hungry and thirsty for the things of Jesus, we will be satisfied by Jesus. It says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy. And this right here is the first beatitude that actually deals with how you specifically treat others. It said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is this truth that I do not get what I deserve. That 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 I don't get what I am owed. I go and cheat on a test, and my teacher does not expel me. That's mercy. I don't get what I deserve. And I don't think it's any question, but we're living in a pretty merciless time right now, aren't we? Where mercy is almost seen as a bad thing, as a weak thing. That we don't, we, mercy isn't really part of, of the way that we live our lives unless we're on the receiving end of it. I think it's interesting. Mercy, it, it, it's, it's, like, it's like what we are ready to receive but reluctant to extend. Mercy. That's, that's how I'm going to describe it for us in Western culture. What we are ready to receive but reluctant to extend. Why? We're in this culture where we cancel everybody. As soon as somebody does anything wrong, no, they're canceled. That we just get rid of people who do, who do wrong things. And the reason I'm laughing is because you're the people who do wrong things. I'm the people who do wrong things. And, and, and we so flippantly just get rid of the bad people. 
not understanding that we are the bad people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's so interesting when we think about mercy because it's, it's like we judge others off of their actions, but we judge ourselves off of our intentions. You know what I mean? That, well, I didn't mean that. You, you, you know my heart. You know I wouldn't. Like, like we, well, I didn't mean for, but they, I mean, you know, but you saw what they did. You know how they are. You know what they do. And all of a sudden, their actions condemn them while our intentions actually set us free. It's dangerous talk when we talk about what we deserve as Christians. It's, it's, it's dangerous because when we think about this idea of deserving and earning, we have to understand that as Christians, followers of Jesus, we earned and deserved hell. We earned and deserved death. We earn and deserve to be separated from God. And when we start using this type of language, we, 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 we start attributing something to them that is actually attributed to us. I think we don't like mercy in our culture right now because we confuse it with allowance. That we think, well, if I give them mercy, they're going to think that it's okay. They're going to want to do it again. They're, they're not going to learn their, they're not gonna learn their lesson. And I want to take us to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. It says this. I, I, I need to read it because it's so important. It says this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's talking about us. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, is Paul writing, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the evil desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, listen to this, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And if you know your Bible, we're at verse 4, and it says, But God, being what? Rich in mercy. But God, being rich in in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, it is by grace that you have been saved. So now with that in mind, as a follower of Jesus, what this simply means is that because of how merciful God has been to you, you go be merciful to them. With this in mind, God being rich in mercy extended this to us. He is overflowing in mercy. He has extravagant mercy. He will never run out of mercy. And it's almost like he looks at us and says, and you are telling me that you won't give mercy to them? Now let's think about this. We sinful, wrong people have offended a pure and holy God. And he, this pure, perfect, righteous, holy God, has decided to not to give us sinful, hurtful, wrong people what we deserve. But <laughs> my sinful, wrongful self can't give you your sinful, wrongful self mercy. Do we see the disconnect here? 
that we have been pardoned to, to the nth degree in, 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 in a manner that we can't even fathom. And we can't give mercy to someone just like us. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 18 after Peter asks this really, he thinks is smart, but actually dumb question. How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus says, no, actually 70 times, seven times. You guys remember the story. And Jesus actually responds with that. And then he says, imagine, okay, think about this. He tells this beautiful parable about this king and this uh, uh, um, servant. And there's this king who says, you know what? I am going to settle all of my accounts at this time. He brings in everybody who owes the king a debt. And this man comes to the king and says, man, I know I have this debt, but I can't pay it. And the king's like, bro, that stinks. All right, peace. You're going to be thrown in prison. And he's like, actually, he said he was going to like sell everything he had and sell him. And then, and then the king was like, I'm just going to sell pretty much everything you got and sell you. And he was like, no, please, 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 please have mercy on me. The king pardons him and he gets to go free. A beautiful story. And then and the second that that man goes free, he goes to another man who owes him some money and says, oh, you owe me a couple thousand dollars. I'll give me my money. Man's like, bro, I'm sorry. I can't pay that money right now. It's just tough times. You know, me and my family, you got a pandemic going on. And then all of a sudden he starts shaking him down and throws him in jail because he couldn't pay him a thousand dollars right after the king pardoned him for an, un an unimaginable amount. The king hears about this. The king comes back to the man who he forgave the debt for and said, I heard about what you did. I forgave you, but you can't forgive him. Sometimes that's exactly what we do with each other. That we have been forgiven an insurmountable debt of sin and death and hell. And we cannot forgive them because they posted something crazy on Facebook. Right? That I'm not going to hell because of his mercy, but I'm going to unfriend you because of a comment? Excuse me? That I can't show you mercy, even though I've been shown mercy. It's, it's blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the truth that because we have been shown mercy, we show mercy. And and Jesus is talking about this revolving door of mercy here that because I've been shown such great mercy, now I'm going to show great mercy. And now that I've shown great mercy, God's going to show me great mercy. And because I show great mercy, God's... And it's this revolving door of mercy that we get as followers of Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. As you show mercy, you get mercy because we live in his mercy every day. Verse 8, as... I'm about to close if Darian could come up. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is a special one because this involves something that some of the others just don't. That you get limited access. What this verse tells me is that purity brings perspective. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity brings perspective. This purity, this, this, this idea, this free of contamination, this spotless, clear record, this, this, this very clean thing, this pure thing allows us to see God. I think that purity brings perspective while impurity interrupts clarity. We see that in Mark chapter 7. 
Jesus is talking to them about what defiles a person. And he says they're talking about foods and what I can eat or what I can drink. And he says, out of a person's heart is that that defiles them. Out of a person's heart is that which defiles him. Which means that Jesus is saying that it's not the things on the outside that make us unclean, but the thing on the inside that makes us unclean. And we would love to be able to clean the things on the outside to make it clean. But Jesus is saying, you guys have been really, really good at cleaning the outside and ignoring the inside. But the issue is that the thing that makes you unclean is the one thing that you can't get away from. It's your heart. The thing that makes us impure is the thing that we can't get away from. And they were not strangers to this idea of purity, of cleanliness. They had rituals all over <laughs> the, the Israelites, the Jews. They had, they had rituals and ceremonies all over on how to be clean. Washings and, 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 and th- people they had to talk to and, and places they had to go if they were sick and things that they couldn't do. And if they did this, they had to shave their hair, they had to wash a certain way. And they had all of these different rituals and ceremonies that were telling them, if you were dirty, this is how you become clean. Now, this idea was good. And it was supposed to represent that you are clean on the outside in this metaphor of being clean on the inside. But the thing is, is that the thing on the inside is the thing that's making us dirty on the outside. It's the root that affects the fruit, not the fruit that affects the root. If, if, if I go into a tree and I poison one single apple off of that tree, we're going to be a fool to think that the root is going to suffer. But as soon as I go and if I poison the root system of a tree, I affect every other part of that tree. And Jesus is saying that there is a root issue in our hearts that is affecting everything. Every fruit that comes of our life could be tainted because what comes out of us is the thing that defiles us. It's, 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 it's our heart. And once we see this issue, it's, it's difficult because they're probably thinking, okay, well, if, 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 if we're supposed to be pure in heart and not just pure in action, not just pure in language, not just pure in religion, not just pure in morality, but pure in heart, then what are we supposed to do? This isn't a ceremonial cleanliness that God was talking about that they were used to, but this is talking about how to be inwardly pure for God. Jesus was taking it a step further, saying that your heart has to be pure for you to see God. And partially, I think the reason Jesus said this is because man can't see your purity of heart, but God can. And God isn't impressed by the things that man is impressed by. This is why he asks for your heart, because when you honor God in places that no one else can see, God shows you things that no one else can see. When you honor God in places that no one else sees, God shows you things that no one else sees. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God is asking for a purity, a not, not to be contaminated inside of our heart, but to actually have a pure heart. And you might ask, well, if the thing that defiles me is the thing that he's asking for me to be pure, then how am I supposed to be pure? It's that Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. 
The way to have a pure heart is for God to give you one. There's no way that you're pure. <laughs> There's no way that something unclean can make something clean. And Jesus is the only one who can give us that pure heart. He's saying, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. This is an invitation to intimacy with the Father. That purity is actually a prerequisite for intimacy. And that God is asking for us to be pure so that we can have the privilege of intimacy with the Father. That purity might not impress anybody else in your work, but it will impress God. That purity is something that God is asking for. For us to have a new perspective of him. And lastly, verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And it's crazy because Jesus is saying peacemakers, not peacekeepers. There's a difference. There's a peacemaker and there's a peacekeeper. Peacemaker is someone who brings about peace. Peacekeeper is someone who just might live in peace. And he's saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In order to bring peace somewhere, you have to go where there is none. In order for you to bring about peace, you must go where there is no peace. And peace doesn't mean easy, carefree, perfect, a, 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 a life with no issues. That's not what peace is. Peace is the presence of Jesus. And the reason that we know that peace is not the absence of problems, but the presence of Jesus, is because the Prince of Peace didn't have a life of peace. That we see our King who was living in chaotic times, who was born into chaotic times, who was born into chaos, had no place to live, no place to be born. There was no room for him where he was born in a town that didn't like him and didn't welcome him back, who had a, 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 a cousin who actually didn't, a brother who didn't believe in him, who had someone who prepared the way for him, who died on behalf of him, who had his best friends abandon him after three years, who had the people who he was coming to save reject him, who was crucified on behalf of his creation for his creation. The Prince of Peace didn't have a life of peace. And that's how we know that God is not saying that peace, peacemaking is making everything easy. But it's bringing Jesus wherever you go. Bringing the ministry of reconciliation wherever you go. This word, and this is the last thing I promise, this word is it, it, the peacemaker is, is this irenopios. This word that actually means a, a treaty between two countries. And, and, and the, the reason why it's so important that we see this is because when we see that this peacemaker is making a treaty between two countries, you need to know that you are on the opposite side of the country of heaven. And when Jesus came to our country, he said, I'm coming to reconcile you back to me. I'm here to bring and make a treaty that could not have been possible otherwise. And when Jesus came, he had a treaty with the kingdom of heaven and earth. And he brought this peace and made peace. And there is heaven now, peace on earth because of him. And when Jesus came to settle the conflict, now he brought a treaty of peace between our, between our two countries. Colossians 1 
Verse 19 through 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When we engage the lost and broken and preach the cross of Jesus of peace, we are resembling his son so much that he now actually gives us a new identity. You notice that this is the only beatitude that gives you a new identity. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And Jesus says, God says, when you are acting like my son to the point where you are bringing peace wherever you go, I actually now want to claim you as my own. Why? Because that's exactly what my son did. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. And as followers of Jesus, this is our calling, that he is calling us up to be a peacemaker, not just a peacekeeper. He's calling us to break down walls that keep people out, not build up walls that that, that keep people out. He's saying any wall that is keeping somebody away from me needs to be torn down. And what it looks like to be a peacemaker in the kingdom of heaven It's to bring the ministry of reconciliation wherever we go. That you on behalf of Jesus are bringing peace, the Prince of Peace, the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, this truth wherever you go. Why? Because God first brought peace to us. This is the kingdom of heaven. These are the blessings that are pronounced over the people who are following Jesus in this way. And now that we see the kingdom of heaven, I pray that we can have the attitude to see Jesus rightly and ask the Holy Spirit, God, would you make in me what Jesus is talking about here so that I can be a good citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Would you pray with me? God, we love you so much. We're so thankful for the gift of grace. God, that you loved us and chose us, forgave us and and are with us, not because you have to, but because you want to. That you have given us your unmerited, undeserved favor and blessing of God. God, I'm asking that would be a reality for us.